Hello, I'm Daryl Owens. Welcome to A World of Difference. Each episode celebrates and supports families nurturing children who think and learn differently on their journeys from kindergarten through college. A World of Difference is an educational outreach program at Beacon College. The Leesburg, Florida School is America's first accredited college or university dedicated to educating mostly students with learning disabilities, ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning differences. So let's get inspired. You've probably heard of STEM. In an educational context, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. In our tech-heavy society, STEM-related learning holds supersized importance. Educators encourage students to devour topics and disciplines that will be in high demand and pay big bucks in life. Yet students with disabilities are missing in action in STEM majors. Their absence starts early. According to a 2012 study from Georgia Tech, Quote, accommodating students in K-12 science and mathematics courses is often problematic, and many students with disabilities are not integrated within the general classroom and are relegated to learning in special education classrooms that do not prepare them for the rigors of university education in STEM fields, unquote. For the few students with learning disabilities who emerge from K-12 schools still interested in STEM, the Georgia Tech study noted that, quote, teachers, instructors, and professors are frequently unable, unprepared, or otherwise ill-equipped to recognize the needs of students with disabilities. Consequently, course content may be inaccessible, unquote. How can we increase STEM opportunities for students who learn differently? On this episode, we see how one Orlando, Florida school is making science accessible through its scaffolded learning environment for dyslexic students that fosters engagement in learning in STEM disciplines. Next, we'll explore the challenges of inclusive science education and provide actionable strategies that parents can use to spark your child's interest and passion for science and technology in our Just the Facts conversation. And we'll close out the show with this month's difference maker, the brilliant primatologist with autism who learned to relate better to mankind through her relationships with gorillas. How can students who learn differently benefit, like Dr. Prince Hughes from STEM education? Why should society care about neurodiversity in the science world? All that coming up shortly. Researchers at the Comparative and International Education Society Conference recently noted that the goal of current reform policies and efforts in STEM education involves supporting the scientific literacy of diverse learners and building their knowledge and skills to adequately prepare them to pursue careers in STEM fields. Yet, fewer than 1% of students with disabilities take advanced placement courses. That so few LD students enroll in STEM-related classes lends credibility to the lie that they are less capable. And students, too, may begin to buy into the misperception. In Orlando, Florida, the Christ School revives passion for science for dyslexic students through its innovative STEAM lab. Their students are blinded with science through hands-on learning and supports. Here's a world of differences correspondent Cindy Peterson with the story. 
We're here in the heart of downtown Orlando at the First Presbyterian Church, which houses the Christ School. In recent years, the school has been building their bridge program through their STEAM lab, which focuses on helping kids diagnosed with dyslexia. So the Christ School is a independent, private Christian school located downtown Orlando. We have a wonderful program for kindergarten, actually transitional kindergarten, all the way through eighth grade. And within the school, we have our, our bridge program. The bridge program is designed for students with dyslexia in grades second through fourth grade and we have a program that's really unique in Orlando where we have specially designed classrooms with a low student to teacher ratio where we work on reading through the Orton-Gillingham approach. We also utilize multi-sensory math. The students take part in all of the wonderful parts of our school, special areas, field trips, lunch, recess with their same age peers. And they also, through this specialized program, really work on not just remediating the skills and te to teach them reading, but we also work on self-advocacy, we also work on um, teaching them to be uh, independent, transitioning to middle school through with assistive technology. We teach them that you know their dyslexia is not a mistake, that they have many gifts and talents, and we really spend a good amount of time focusing on what those gifts and talents are. And those can really be seen and developed through special area classes like our STEAM lab. So within our STEAM lab, we use a inquiry-based learning approach. So we really ask kids questions and we use that related to the, uh, the four C's. So critical thinking, creative problem solving, collaboration and communication. So we start off with a question, a problem to be solved, a challenge, and the students really have a lot of opportunities to do hands-on activities related to that problem to find a creative solution. Alyssa says she works closely with the students and teachers in educational evaluations to see if there is any learning disabilities, but because of the growing popularity of the program, many students transfer here after being diagnosed. We do have children who come to us having already been diagnosed, looking for support, not just to help them with the reading piece, but to also help them know that they are loved, that they are seen, that they are understood, and that they're part of a community, that they are not the odd man out or feeling different, that they can come and really be um, understood by teachers who are passionate about teaching um, those students and also peers that they are, um, have lots of things in common with. Through the STEAM Lab, children have found a new approach to science and creativity. I like science because there's materials that you can build with and there, there's like a way that you can put them together and be creative and do it however you want to be. I think my strengths are uh, to, to build and imagine things. And imagine how it's going to be like, how it's going to look like. Some activities that we have done so far would be like a water bridge and birdhouses. The bridge teachers work closely with their regular school grade teachers in creating curriculum designed specifically for the students' strengths. So at first it was a little difficult because at my old school they didn't really teach me good. But here they have different tools that they can help me with. It feels like it helps me on science because I get to be more creative. First, I did not like reading, but now I do because I actually understand it now. 
For Alyssa, there's no better feeling than hearing of a parent who has seen the difference this program has made in their child. We've had a lot of success so far. We see uh, life change happening in terms of families who will email me and say, you know, my child picked up a book for the first time today. You know, now our quality of life is better because we can spend our evenings doing sports and different activities and art classes and things that the child's really passionate about. And we take care of the academic piece during the day. With a world of difference, I'm Cindy Peterson. Thanks, Cindy, for that motivating piece. For a deeper dive, we bring in Drs. Brian Ogle and Mary Ann Primack. Dr. Brian Ogle is an assistant professor of anthrozoology with specialties in zoos, aquariums, animal shelters, human-wildlife conflict, and pet animal ownership at Beacon College. He is a former executive member at large for the Association of Professional Humane Educators. He served as program director at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. And for the past two years, Ogle has served on the National Science Teaching Association's Committee on Post-Secondary Science Teaching and serves as the post-secondary strand coordinator for the NSTA STEM Forum and Expo, the international event for STEM educators. Dr. Marianne Primack is an expert in educational leadership and an assistant professor at Beacon College, where she prepares future educators, increases career readiness, and equips students for a lifestyle of wellness. Primack specializes in post-secondary access, retention, and success, developmental and remedial adult education, and academic and interpersonal support for neurodiverse students. Dr. Ogle, when it comes to STEM in college, um, students are virtually invisible. Why aren't there more students in the STEM pipeline? So that's really kind of a multifaceted question. So there's some really interesting components when we look at it. Um, it actually starts even before middle school, believe it or not. Um, by the time we're usually in that middle school age range, we make up our decision of what it is we're interested in, what we want to do with the rest of our life. Um, around that age frame is when we really start making that decision, is math and science engaging or is it too complex for me and do I want to even pursue this? Um, so at that point in time, that messaging that the students are really experiencing in the middle school environment, both you know in the school environment as well as at home, determines you know where am I going to go. From that point, we also look at the trajectory and the progression through. So when we start looking at the recruitment process for undergraduate programs, there's actually a lot of discriminatory language and even discriminatory practices that are actually put into place within a lot of STEM programming. Um, even if whether it's done purposefully or whether it's unconsciously done, um, that it all kind of exists because they're looking for the best, the brightest, the strongest. And so that language actually makes individuals question, is this gonna be okay for me? Is this competitive environment is one that I'm gonna thrive in? Um, so when they start being exposed to that language, they, they very quickly determine whether this is a path I'm gonna pursue or not. And then when they get into that environment, 
the experience where are called gatekeeper courses. Gatekeeper courses are really designed to weed out the weak is kind of what they're designed for. Um, so as they start progressing through that, that gatekeeper course is going to either reaffirm that messaging that I can do this and I'm capable of doing it, or it's gonna reaffirm that messaging that I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough to handle this. And so that environment really kind of shifts everything around. Um, and so depending on you know the progression that they experience and the, the reaffirmations that they get you know from an early age all the way through their high school and into their early years of college, really determines are they gonna excel or are they not gonna excel within that environment. Great. Well, Dr. Primack, when it comes to teaching LD students STEM in elementary levels, should the emphasis be placed on learning or the teaching style? The emphasis should definitely be placed on the learner. Uh, we wanna connect with the learner's experiences and the teacher is also in the role of learning. So it should be a mutual process of discovery. Um, the teacher's really discovering more about how to connect the content to the student's experiences and the students are learning about the content and they're, they're making those connections with their previous experiences and the teacher's role is to make those connections transparent. Um, it's really important to focus on process, um, so looking at how a student learns, so and making that process of how a student learns transparent. Thank you. Dr. Ogle, could you give us a, an example of a better approach for teaching a particular STEM uh, subject? Yeah, so there's a lot of different things that we do in education that we know are not best practice for really support our students. Um, you know, one of the things that we kind of have a tradition on leaning on is this idea of you have to do these major tests, right? And that's a, a hallmark of almost every undergraduate biology course or microbiology course is that you have this big midterm exam and you have this big final exam at the end of the semester. Those processes actually decourage or kind of really set up a lot of barriers, even for students without a learning disability. Um, you know, one of the approaches I take in particular with my biology courses is we don't do exams. Instead, we do authentic assessment. So that process of really immersing the student into real world application and really seeing how does this information apply and how does it work and how do I pull it apart and put it back together again really demonstrates more of a thorough understanding of content than just purging that information and moving on. The problem with testing is that you can memorize it ahead of time, you purge it out on the day of the test, and then you kind of forget it and move on to the next round of that. Through authentic assessment, by applying it into a career setting and applying it to how does this information live outside of the classroom, right? Just beyond theory for theory's sake, you're developing stronger connections to that information and you're seeing how everything builds off of each other and continues to like make a, a process come to life. Um, so that, that practice really not only is gearing your students to think more critically, but it's actually engaging the content and they're actually walking away with a more thorough understanding of information that's gonna last a longer amount of time than let's say you know, a, a chapter test at the end of you know, the month um, per se. Well, let me hit you with another one, Dr. Ogle. There is this belief um, that some have that students uh, who have learning disabilities could actually rise to a higher bar in STEM if it would set for them. How can we create an environment that helps them to thrive and to uh, succeed in STEM disciplines? Yeah, I think 
a high bar is important. And that's something that, you know, as educators across the campus at Beacon College, we firmly believe in, right? We're not lowering the bar for our students. We're setting that bar as the same as if we were teaching students with a learning disability or not. And that's important. You can't lower the bar for them. Um, one of the things that you do though, is you change the environment in which they're in. The environment really determines are they going to be willing to take risk? Are they going to rise to that occasion? Um, and I, you can talk to my students in particular, I raise that bar and I push them and I challenge them and I ask a lot out of them. Um, and they rise to that occasion and they, they definitely go for it and they strive for it. The difference is that I'm not just holding them super accountable and I'm asking them to learn this complex information, but I'm providing the network and the, the support systems within the class environment that they feel comfortable letting me know they don't understand something. They feel comfortable taking a risk when they think that they may not necessarily understand something. And that environment really is what makes the difference. So it is important to raise the bar with these students for sure, but you can't do it if you don't have the, the nurturing kind of environment that allows them to feel comfortable to take that risk. If you raise the bar without that support system, they're not gonna rise to the occasion. They're not gonna go after that challenge. Uh, one of the things we know with students with learning disability in particular is that they are kind of risk averse. They're not gonna go after it if they don't have to. Um, and so if you set up an environment where you're encouraging risk taking, but they're safe to do so, they're going to chase that opportunity. They're going to chase that, that um, approach to do it. Um, kind of leaning back into that idea of authentic assessment within the courses, that's a, a self-differentiating activity, meaning that um, within that environment, the student kind of sets the bar themselves and they can kind of set where they're going to rise and how they're going to push themselves. And so within a single class, you can have 16 variations of the same thing happening and the student can push themselves you know, independently or you can encourage them to kind of push something further um, and explore something further than what they may be willing to do on their own. Dr. Primack, that question seems to be in your wheelhouse. Do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I would say that when you're setting up that environment for students to take risks and you want them to apply themselves in an authentic capacity and an authentic assessment, um, you want to always emphasize that mistakes will be made. That's going to happen. Failure is going to happen. And looking at that process of how the mistake was made, what we can learn from that, instead of emotionally investing in any kind of fear or shame, that's how we can move towards growth. So we want to emphasize that growth mindset always, you know, and, and also making transparent our own mistakes as educators. Like when we make a mistake in the classroom, owning up to that and being transparent with students and looking at how we're processing that mistake to learn and grow. And we do that in the classrooms all the time, you know, even finding ways to highlight. So we'll do case studies, for example, where we're actually doing an analysis of something that went wrong um, and actually kind of practicing and acting it out and showing that mistakes do happen. But what's important is how do you recover from that mistake and how do you learn from it? And we talk about the idea too quite a bit in, in our classes that when you make a mistake, that's an opportunity for two things to happen. Either you're gonna you know, kind of grow and develop out from that and kind of really walk away with a different understanding of something, or it's going to beat you up and you're gonna kind of self-deflate and, and how do you handle that? And what is the appropriate response for that, especially in a career setting? Um, and we, you know, one of the important things that I do within my classes, I talk about mistakes that I made as a working professional. What did I learn from those moments? And just let them understand the fact that it's going to happen and it's gonna to happen to you and how do you walk away, you know, in an appropriate kind of reaction or an appropriate moment for that. Mm -hmm. well, Dr. Ogle, too often it seems we focus on 
the uh, deficits that children with disabilities have rather than focusing on their strengths. I'm wondering some of the traits that help them, that make them struggle in classrooms, might they be beneficial to them when it comes to STEM? Yeah. So one of the, I think the most important things is always focusing on that idea of strength, right? What can I do versus what can I not do? And one of the most important things in that moment is really understanding your learning disability. Your learning disability will help you understand what are my strengths? What am I going to be you know, leaning into that, that will help me um, almost use it to as an advantage? Uh, so understanding your learning disability and acknowledging the fact that you have a learning disability is really critical. From that point, understanding the fact that you have a support system. There's a team of individuals that are around you that are gonna help you succeed and they're gonna help you thrive. So understanding when and how to use that support system is really critically important. And that's a common trait that's been shown throughout the research um, in multiple settings that students who lean into that support system are more likely to thrive than those that do not. Um, and then beyond that, once you have your support system and once you understand what your strengths are, being aware of how can I maximize my strengths or if I do have a weakness, how can I take one of my strengths and use that to help you know, support you know, a weakness and, and kind of overcome that? So understanding your strategies, we call those compensatory um, strategies, and so how do I use those to my, my advantage? Um, that can include you know, using like assistive technology, for example, and how do I use this uh, platform to help me through a, a skill maybe that I'm not strong in, whether that's reading or writing, um, and how do I use that moment um, to really propel myself forward. And that's just kind of regardless of what the student's major is gonna be or what their career path is gonna be. Um, but in STEM in particular, that's really important. One of the things that we know is that reading and vocabulary is really the main barrier that students face in the STEM disciplines in particular. Um, it is like learning a second language for anybody. Um, you know, STEM vocabulary, regardless of what specific discipline you're in, can be complex and it can be tough. And so even for um, you know, someone who doesn't have a learning disability, learning that vocabulary is kind of like drinking like a water fountain. If you take your time, you go slow, you're gonna be fine. But if you forget to swallow, or if you're trying to take in too much at a time, it can be overwhelming and it can cause problems. For students with a learning disability, we actually equate that to like drinking out of a fire hose. It's so complex and it's so fast and it's so rapid um, and it's such a heavy load that that's actually what the biggest barrier is a lot of times is that aspect of being able to handle the vocabulary. So providing them those strategies and those tools to understand that here's your weakness, here's kind of what, excuse me, um, what is going on as far as your um, difficulty with understanding vocabulary and that we're all going through that, right? With that, again, highlighting our, our kind of, you know, modeling aspects of I struggled with vocabulary. This was a difficult thing for me to learn when I was in your shoes, but let's look at your strengths. Let's look at how can you use your strengths to maybe find a different study strategy or a different way to memorize this vocabulary, or how do I figure out ways to put this vocabulary in a context that maybe is different than what some of my peers are doing, so that way you can be able to overcome those challenges with the, the vocabulary in particular and understand the context of how it's being used, and that's a big component um, for those individuals. Thank you. Well, Dr. Primack, um, one reason that parents watch A World of Difference is strategies to help them uh, help their children. Um, can you provide some actionable strategies that parents can use to help to nurture uh, both an interest and a passion for STEM and students with learning disabilities? 
Sure. So I think that um, you can kind of take three strategies that uh, an approach um, setting up a home environment in which STEM is emphasized. So that would be maybe in the toys that you buy, in the shows that you watch, um, any opportunities that exist like cooking in the kitchen where you are using a lot of measuring or projects around the house, like include your children in those activities and emphasize the STEM components that exist there. And like Brian was saying, incorporate that vocabulary so that they're getting a chance to practice that vocabulary and hearing it throughout their lives. Um, and then you also wanna casually approach the environment. So when you're interacting with the outside world, you know, you're going around, for instance, I was um, outside looking at lights that are up for decoration, for Halloween decorations with my daughter. And we were asking, you know, I was asking her, how, how many lights do you think there are? You know, and talking about estimating and how high do you think the lights go up on the tree? And just interacting with, an, you know, kind of an, uh, a perspective of intellectual curiosity and an inquisitive mind um, interaction, interacting like that in the world, just in your everyday world. And then if you can set up recreational activities like going to museums, going to science centers. So emphasizing that um, those trips that you take with your family, those that time that you spend together, um, you know, maybe if even if you do go to a sports game, you know, emphasize the STEM components that exist within a sports game um, or just do outright um, STEM activities like going to a museum or a science center. Those are all great tips, thank you. So uh, Dr. Ogle, if you are a parent and you're taking these tips and you're doing them in the home, but the school is not the home, how can you as a parent fight for interventions and accommodations that will help your child succeed in STEM in the, uh, the school place? Yeah, I think the the battle for accommodations is really important. Um, you know, and there's different pathways that exist for that, um, especially in the, the K-12 environment. The K-12 environment is actually fairly easy to request accommodations compared to the higher ed environment. And so one of the reasons why I think it's really important that you're engaging in that process early and actually communicating the process to that student is as they go to college, the parent can no longer be involved in that process either. Um, and one of the reasons why we know that students in the college environment don't thrive is that they're actually they're not getting their accommodations that they need. They're not actually getting um, you know, the interventions that should be afforded to them and that are protected by law for them. Um, and a lot of it is because of the fact that the process is so complex where they haven't been involved in that process before or they don't feel comfortable self-advocating for themselves that they just stop and they don't go through or finish the process. And as a result of that, they're not getting the extended time on test. They're not getting some of the accommodations that they need. And that ultimately sets up this huge barrier that they're not going to be successful in the, in the higher ed environment. Um, and having that process of being able to self-advocate is really important as well. One of the things that routinely comes up in the, in the literature um, when we look at STEM in higher education is that faculty in particular don't know necessarily how to approach this idea. They don't necessarily understand the concept of a learning disability or what is a learning disability. And it's much more prevalent in that STEM environment than it is in the arts and sciences. Um, and so as a result of that, 
the faculty need that, that relationship with that student, not only as a way to support the student, but also to learn from the student as well. And many of the faculty will actually adapt strategies where they'll even adapt to the way that they work in the classroom based off of their understanding from that individual student. Um, but if the student is not willing to, to create that accommodation or, or self-advocate for that, that process can't happen. Um, and so that's really important. And that starts really in the K-12 environment, really the student understanding, again, what is my learning disability? What are my strengths? Um, what is it realistically that I need help with? And what are these accommodations that I need in order to be successful? Um, and really being able to communicate those clearly. And as a, a K-12 educator or a parent of a K-12 student, that's an important process to really engage with them early on, is helping them to understand what is their learning disability and something that's not to be ashamed of and it's something that they can't control and really how do we work with it and how do we you know get you to thrive and lean into those strengths but also be realistic about communicating your needs well the final question for both of you is what is the upshot here um, why should anyone even care that we have neurodiverse individuals pursuing the science fields and I'll start with you, Dr. Primack. Yeah, well, I would say that we know that organizations are strengthened by diversity. So um, we want to pursue equity in our uh, places of employment, in the STEM field especially, um, where there is uh, lack of diversity at times, of neurodiversity in particular. Um, and we want to create, there's, there's opportunities there. It's not just the opportunity for the neurodiverse person, but it's an opportunity for the organization itself to be benefited by the person who is is neurodiverse. We know that many of the greatest thinkers of all time have would now be categorized as neurodiverse. So the, the organizations themselves are missing out on an opportunity for the contributions that these people bring to the organization. Absolutely. I think that the whole concept of just approaching the world differently is really incredible. Um, and what's really neat, unique as far as STEM is when you present a STEM challenge, especially an engineering challenge, and you watch the students problem solve, you'll see different ways of coming about the, the, the solution to what they're trying to accomplish, and it may be ways that you never thought of it yourself either. Um, and so having that opportunity to have someone with a different worldview or understands that their strength is that they can perceive things differently or they understand processes differently or that they're a linear thinker, that really makes an organization kind of stronger and more richer, and it really helps to make a team that can thrive in a complex environment and meet shifting demands on a regular basis, for sure. Well, Dr. Ogle and Dr. Primack, we thank you so much for appearing today on A World of Difference and for the deep dive into STEM. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, we salute this month's Difference Maker. Mankind has a long fascination with apes. Consider Kong a king-sized version of that fascination. For Dr. Dawn Prince-Hughes, her fascination was kindled as a young adult when she watched the way silverback male gorillas played caretaker and peacekeeper, helping to establish a community norm. Prince-Hughes has parlayed her fascination with gorillas into a distinguished career that paid off in helping her to navigate the hurdles she had with human rapport because of her autism, helping her by understanding the gorilla way. Here's a World of Difference correspondent, Brad Kuhn, with her story. Sometimes it takes someone who sees things differently 
to reveal things that others can't or won't see. Dr. Dawn Prince-Hughes is an American anthropologist, primatologist, and ethologist, known among other things for her groundbreaking work with silverback gorillas. In 2000, she was appointed an adjunct professor at Western Washington University. She is an executive chair of ApeNet Inc. and served as the executive director of the Institute for Cognitive Archaeological Research and is associated with the Jane Goodall Institute. I felt like I had a mission almost, but I didn't rule out that that mission would be dying in a horrendous way. Dr. Prince Hughes sees noises. She tastes sounds, cross-sensing abilities associated with Asperger's syndromes that overwhelm her at times. At 15, she quit school, ran away from her home in the Midwest, and found herself sleeping on a cardboard box on the streets of Seattle. Alone and afraid, she sought comfort in the connection she had always felt with nature. So the day I met the gorillas at the zoo, oh, that was such a fantastic moment. It was a big deal for me because I would have to concentrate and see the number on the bus, where I was going, and get off at the right stop and make a transfer, which required paying attention to the numbers on the bus and trying to screen out the people in chaos around me. So I did make it to the zoo and I, and I you know, had the challenge of paying for, for a ticket and, and getting in and I was completely overwhelmed. And I sort of wandered around seeing different animals, but then um, I went around the corner and saw the gorillas and and it was a revelation. I knew immediately that these were people that I understood and that they were going to understand me in turn, really for the first time in my life. After about an hour, they started to sort of glance at me. Oh, they'd still be doing things. And later I learned that only that, that it's only about five seconds the average person stays in front of the gorilla exhibit. And so my staying there and sort of passing the test of the hour threshold got their attention and then they realized, okay, we'll see. We'll see if this works out. We'll try to talk. And we just sort of had a very simple, subtle exchange. And I was so hooked because I was so comfortable for the first time. I just went back every single day I could and I just sat there. And now I realize that really my whole uh, nervous system, neurological system was healing during that time. And as I got well, I started to come out of my shell and I started to ask the people that worked there that would always go through, you know, I would stop and ask them questions and grill them about the gorillas and and that's how I got to be known at the zoo and that's how I got to know the gorillas better and better. I personally feel like I was meant to go there that day, that I was meant to see them, that I was meant to find them. And then everything after that really just sort of fell into place because I started doing, you know, I started working with the gorillas. And I remember on the tail end of that, my, my uh, boss, he said, you know, Don, you should really go back to school. I just didn't think I'd ever go back, but I found, he helped me find a situation where I could do studies at the zoo and, and take the classes I needed at, at the college. 
and sort of combine these things um, toward my, my degree trajectory. I was doing a tool use study and Kismet has it that at, at that time, while I was observing for the study, one of the little five-year-old gorillas, Alafia, saw a little moth up on the wall. So she got this shorter, stouter stick and put it under her arm and bipedally walked around, continued to look. She was definitely looking for something. And she picked up the second, longer, thinner stick. And then she walked upright back to the wall. She put the stout stick on the ground at an angle, climbed up it like a ladder, swatted the moth, it fell into her hand, and she ate it. I mean, I was hugging strangers, yelling, did you see that? No one had ever seen that before. Two, two tools at once, like that. This was really vindicating, this tool use thing, because people had always sort of attached uh, tool use and intelligence together, like, uh, like it, was, it was a benchmark. So when my, my new mentor uh, in, in college, Ben Abe, a uh, great Ugandan guy, uh, when he read my paper on the gorilla tool use, he said, well, Dawn, you must present this at the Jane Goodall Institute. And <laughs> I about died. I just thought I was not worthy. Uh, but we wrote it up and we sent it in, and that's the first time I met Jane. And, and we hit it off, and she ended up writing the first, uh, first uh, the foreword for my first book on gorillas, which was just pivotal in, in my career. Um, as great as the things are that I have seen, if I hadn't had someone give me that hand up, it wouldn't it would have come to naught. Her advice for anyone with a learning disability? I know what I'm talking about. And I know that you know what you're here for. You may not know the specific tangibles of it this minute, because when you're working as you should be working in harmony with all the things you can't even see, it's like Joseph Campbell says, when you're on the beam, things just line up for you. And you've always got to keep an eye out for the intersectional because we are all connected in this. So trust your heart and follow that path. Try to have faith in it. And if you need a pep talk, then call me. <laughs> for a world of difference, I'm Brad Kuhn. Thank you, Brad, for that inspiring profile. And congratulations to Dr. Don Prince-Hughes for blazing a difference-making path in STEM. Well, that's all we have for this episode of A World of Difference. Remember that you can re-watch this episode or catch up on past episodes by visiting the Beacon College Facebook page and searching under Videos, and then search under Series. You can also view episodes on Beacon's YouTube channel and the A World of Difference portal on the Beacon website beaconcollege.edu. There you'll find bios of our experts plus downloadable expanded tip sheets including Dr. Brian Ogle's STEM tip sheet from this episode. Podcast lovers can enjoy the program on Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcasting platforms. 
On our next episode, we'll look into helping autistic students succeed on campus and introduce you to our latest Difference Maker. Meanwhile, remember, you can sign up to get your questions answered during our Ask the Experts segment, or you can showcase your family's success through our show participation form on the Beacon website. Until the next time, for Cindy Peterson and Brad Kuhn, I'm Daryl Owens. Thanks for tuning in.